Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to High Performance Manager at the West Coast Eagles, Glenn Stewart. Tune in to this episode of the Pacing Performance Podcast. So I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Stewart, who is the High Performance Manager at the West Coast Eagles. So Glenn has an incredible story starting the club in 1992, so over 25 years of service to the Eagles in AFL. So like I say, fantastic story, getting to six grand finals, four wins in the bag over that 25 year period and definitely a bit of a legend in the world of AFL so really interesting chat with Glenn so naturally we discuss things that have changed over the last 25 years and big turning points in his career that really have shaped that 25 year stint we also discussed building a vision and building a um a culture that they have at the Eagles and what goes into that in terms of staffing, in terms of performance. And then we have a little chat around the key principles of his work at the Eagles, as well as focus on the big rocks and focusing on time and where they focus their time and effort at the Eagles. And then the big impact that psychology and the mental side of the game has had on his practice at the Eagles. So really interesting chat with Glenn, which I'm sure you'll absolutely love. So there's this episode is based around loosely a presentation that Glenn gave um, a couple of times. It's also on YouTube, so I'll link to that in the show notes that I put out on social media. So if you are interested in delving a little bit deeper into that presentation, you can get it, um, the link on Twitter. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from I Measure You is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So I Measure You have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Glenn Stewart. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Stewart, who is the High Performance Manager at the West Coast Eagles in the AFL. So welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Rob, for having me. Really appreciate it. As I said before, your name's come up a couple of times in various different conversations with various different people. So it was it was definitely a sign to be able to, uh, to stalk you and try to get you on. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a little bit of a rundown on your background, uh, what you're currently doing, what you know, education pathway, and um, and what you're currently doing at the Eagles? Sure. Um, so the high performance manager role um, at our club uh, oversees uh, probably three or four different areas within the club. Uh, so I'm responsible for administering the strength and conditioning um, aspect of the club 
uh, the medical area of the footy club, uh, sports science, and our fourth area is research. So I sort of sit as a, as a managerial umbrella over those four distinct areas, which all encompass the high performance unit of the footy club. Now, each of those particular areas uh, have their own uh, sort of manager um, and head, and then we have two or three uh, full-time staff working in each of those together with uh, maybe two or three part-time staff. So, for instance, um, just to, for the, the context of it all, we, we have a head strength and conditioning coach, uh, Warren Coford, who's been with the club for a number of years, and he's responsible, obviously, for the, the strength and conditioning and the physical performance development of our players, even though I'm the high-performance manager. So it's a, a slightly unique structure um, in the respect that not everyone might have someone in, in this position. Um, I've been fortunate that I've been at the club for a particularly long time. I started here in 1992, in fact, as a strength coach for West Coast. Uh, that, at, at that particular time, football and the players were only part-time, so I was only part-time. I was a, a phys ed teacher. And then outside of my hours of teaching, I came to the club and did the, the, the strength role uh, for the team. And then in 1997, uh, AFL, Australian Rules Football, started to head towards uh, a full-time uh, professional uh, sport. And so I was offered the opportunity to come on board full-time with, with West Coast. I am denied because uh, I had a secure job in a private school teaching, but I thought, no, this is where my passion lies. So uh, I jumped ship and became full-time here in 1997. Um, I always thought that I would probably last two or three years and then, uh, much like many others in this industry, get a tap on the shoulder and, and that would be my time done. But I've been very, very fortunate to have lasted to 2019. So I've been uh, very grateful to the club that they've seen fit to keep me on board all of this time. Uh, I've been very blessed that we're a, a successful club. Um, I've been fortunate enough in both the part-time and full-time role to be involved in 21 final series. And out of those 21 finals, uh, the club's participated in six grand finals and uh, very fortunately been able to win four premierships. So I, I feel very blessed to have been part of the club for, for that success. Um, my background is track and field. Uh, most of my life, I've uh, most of my sporting life, I've been an athlete. I was a long jumper and a 100-metre sprinter. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, that I selected my parents wisely and uh, I, was, I was gifted with a, a large number of fast-twitch fibres which enabled me to do that. So um, I competed um, as a... As a 100-metre sprinter and a long jumper, I was lucky enough to represent Australia in the long jump. And then, unfortunately, uh, being the driven chap that I that I am, I went into a period of overtraining and had a series of, of stress fractures, and that sort of caused um, premature retirement, and that led me down the coaching path. So I coached track and field for a number of years before, before being involved in Australian Rules footy. Um, I'm a graduate of the University of Western Australia, where I where I have both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in physical education, as it was called then. Uh, I've currently also got a diploma of education, uh, enable me to teach. And then um, other accreditation, I'm a level five coach with the Australian Track and Field Coaches Association and a level two coach um, with the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association, two associations I'm quite proud to be involved with. And in my, in my coaching career as an athletics coach, uh, I was also very lucky to have uh, had some gifted athletes who went on and were able to represent Australia in the Olympic and Commonwealth Games and World Cup. So I, I feel um, very fortunate that in my background I've been able to be involved with both successful individuals and successful teams. And that's sort of where I sit right now, Rob. So um, I, I consider myself very lucky. Excellent, really interesting. So do you think that that teaching background has set you up nicely for, for the last 20 years at the Eagles? And the reason I say that is because it's a common thread with people like Kelvin Giles, just one that come, pops in straight away with that firm teaching background. Do you think that's been a real positive for you to, to allow you to do what you do day to day with the Eagles for the last 20 years? 
Uh, I would say most definitely. Um, I, I think the skills that I learned as a teacher uh, certainly have enabled me to go about uh, many of the processes here um, in, in a different way to, to as if I was just an ex-player who became a coach, which is the common pathway, obviously, as most people would know. And then, of course, if you're an ex-player who becomes a coach, uh, you then have to acquire the skills of teaching and coaching at a later stage. And I, and I think sometimes um, that's very hard to learn. So um, I didn't have necessarily the Australian rules football background, although I played it as a junior, but those those skills in teaching and coaching um, ha have undoubtedly helped me in this particular sport. And, and they're not only, not only have they helped me, they've helped me help others um, so I'd like to think that I have a good relationship with all the coaches at the West Coast Eagles, particularly those that are on the field, coaching the tactics and strategies and the technical skills of the game because I've been able to offer them uh, some assistance in, in, in the way that we coach and, and there's no doubt that the teaching background has helped that for sure. Excellent. So it, it seems a pretty obvious kind of transition into, into the next little bit of a conversation, which is... What's, what's changed? Obviously, there's so much has changed over the last 20 years since you've been there, most notably from part-time to full-time. But is there any real kind of transition points across that 20 years where things have just taken a, a turn um, in, that, in that period, which, which you've kind of flagged and gone, we're at a turning point now, whether it be the first member of staff or kind of first grand final or whatever that may be. It'd be really interesting to get a bit of a snapshot of of that that twenty year period and, and kind of what's changed and maybe what hasn't changed. Yeah, um, well, obviously a lot has changed. Um, that that time frame is is you know nearly three decades, two and a half decades. So if you just take sports science and strength and conditioning alone, forget forget Australian rules football. I mean, a lot has changed um, in, in those two particular areas. And I once remember reading an article uh, about exercise physiology, and the article, and the name escapes me, but the article identified four or five key points in in physiology that changed in the way that uh, we, as sports scientists and strength conditioning practitioners, uh, went about coaching. And, and I sort of always remembered that because I think I can identify some things. Um, in professional sport, in particular Australian rules football, but I'm sure some of your listeners would identify uh, these these things themselves. I know when I first started uh, strength coaching, um, I was given the the direction that we just wanted our players to be big and strong, and that's all that the coach wanted: big, big and strong. So I remember the the strength programs at the time basically consisted of three core lifts, which was uh, squat, bench press and power cleans and then there were some added little lifts to the side. Um, if you have a look at a strength and conditioning program now, um, I mean, it's it's unbelievably different. It's unbelievably in-depth. It's individually tailored. It's got exercises that, that are in it that I can't even pronounce nor describe when I look at what our staff do uh, and the whole evolution of um strength training from just three or four core lifts that you gave to everyone to now these individually tailored pro programs around functional and athletic movement and injury prevention and uh, elite performance. I mean, that's been a, a considerable change. Um, I think one of the other things, uh, Australia has been at the forefront of sports science. I, I think many people would agree with that, particularly because we've been um, an isolated nation. Uh, we've had the Australian Institute of Sport and I always remember when recovery protocols came to the fore and uh, suddenly we had people sitting in rubbish bins full of ice to the stage we have now where we have you know, fully uh, flowing aquatic rivers um, meandering through areas of hot and cold and of different depths and we have different recovery protocols. So I always remember when recovery uh, suddenly became the big thing. Um, probably there was a period of fads. Uh, there was the introduction of uh, slide boards for the groin and then I definitely remember Swiss balls or, or functional balls where all these exercises now started to uh, be performed on a, 
on a large inflated ball. But but I think the most significant change that I've seen um, across that whole era has been the introduction of uh, GPS technology. I, I don't think there's been any more significant change in the way that we go about our business um, other than a result of GPS technology and the flow on from now having everything measured and recorded in terms of distance and speed, uh, rate of velocity change, uh, is all a product of having GPS technology. Uh, and the ripple effect of that has been uh, the, the, the common assessment of load management and, and the role load management plays in both performance and uh, minimising injury, injury risk. Um, and I don't think there's been any one particular point that's been more significant than the introduction of GPS technology. Uh, I would also add there's been a, a lot of emphasis now on, uh, through the early work of uh, the American track and field coach, Lawrence Seagrave, and then uh, of late, Franz Bosch, the way that we look at running and, and the drills and the isolation drills that we, that we provide athletes. Um, that's certainly been a, a significant point of difference. And then obviously the functional and athletic movement skills that are now introduced um, into the whole strength and conditioning continuum, um, both for injury prevention and, and performance. So I think there's been you know, five or six quite significant um, uh, addendums to the way that we go about our business, and, and they would be some of those that, that spring to mind, Rob. How has your role changed and how have you had to adapt based on the GPS, which would be a really interesting um, little conversation, and how you communicate that back to the um, the more technical coaching staff? Because obviously that's had to change with the introduction of so much testing, monitoring, etc. How have you adapted as a practitioner? Um, I think... I think in the early early days of GPS technology, um, there was a lot of uh, toing and froing because I'm not sure we knew exactly what we were doing either, and um, so the conversations were uh, were interesting to say the least because we were trying to provide exercise prescription uh, based on uh, probably our own limited knowledge and certainly limited experience. You now, when you saw a figure. Um, from a from a GPS measurement, what did that actually mean when you didn't have a large amount of historical data? Uh, the way the way I sort of see it now is that our role, uh, my role in particular, is to simply help the coaches make great decisions, and where we can provide evidence and some objective conversation to enable them to make those decisions. I think that's um, fully our role. <clears throat> our role, I do not believe, is to dictate to coaches. Uh, they have a completely a different skill set and our job is to ensure that we can provide them with enough information so they can make really informed uh, decisions about what's in the best interests of the team and the players. Now, obviously, the way that we communicate that can't be in fully blown scientific uh, knowledge because that doesn't suit uh, their background and we've got to be able to provide a language that uh, they understand uh, that they're familiar with and so we try and use um, different formats to be able to get um, enough evidence across to them and, and provide our opinions to enable them to make decisions. So I think it's taken a little while to get that part right, um, what that looks like and uh, we meet regularly with our coaches and uh, as the same in all sports, you know, we're challenged on our view. But at the end of the day, our job is simply to support the coach, allow them to make uh, wonderful decisions based on great information, uh, challenge them uh, when we feel they need to be challenged and support support them with as, as much information as we possibly can. Superb. So the next little bit that I want to chat to you about was based on the uh, one of the presentations that you did at MIT Sloan. I don't know if that was last year, potentially the year before. 
Yeah. And then it was around it was around your vision. And I was really interested to to get this from the from the horse's mouth in a bit more of a maybe more relaxed um, situation. And just for you to explain that vision and how that came around and how you actually went about the process of building the vision, obviously not just something that you plucked out of the air, but something that you obviously went into great depths to, to, um, to develop. So would you be able to communicate that for us and what that vision is and how you, how you came to that? Uh, yep. So I, I think probably the starting point for that is, is, um, my own evolution in this particular role. Uh, so I, I've evolved from being a hands-on coach, um, as I've already alluded to, both um, in in strength coaching, and then um, in the in the early days of my career here, you know, both the conditioning side of AFL and, and in particular speed coaching, which is still what I consider to be my, my small area of expertise. Although many others have passed me by now, it's fair to say, um, into evolving from that into a manager and an administrator. And so I've had to upskill myself personally in, into what um, uh, are the, the skills that make great managers, uh, that make elite managers, to enable me to be able to, uh, I guess, manage the, the group of staff that I have so that their skills can come to the fore and they can do the best job that they can possibly do. And in that evolution, one of the things that certainly I, I won't be budged from is the need to have a really clear vision um, where you're heading. Because if you don't have a vision, it's it's very difficult to align everyone to the same path because everyone, obviously in my employment, I'm sure it's the same in other clubs, um, they're very driven people and in many cases they see their role in the club as uh, as important as anyone else but in some cases more important than other roles so to ensure that we have alignment and that we've got everyone heading in the right direction we really need to have a a pretty clear vision and a, and a strong mission statement so uh, the the approach that i use is um a process called vmos uh, which is v m o s t which is vision mission objectives strategies and tactics um, and each of those has a has a, a particular role to play. So we need to be be clear that in doing that, that our actions and decisions are transparent, um, that they're evidence based, and that they're always in the best interests of the player and the club. So when we make a decision about should we do this or should we do that, we always need to refer back to our own vision and are these actions or these suggestions we're making, are they transparent? Are they evidence-based? Are they in the best interests of the player? Are they in the best interests of the club? And if we can concur that that's the case, then we feel really comfortable on the path that we're going. So all of our staff in my area, all the staff in my area, um, we, we all try and align. We're all very clear about, about what our role is, but more importantly, what our vision is for this particular area. And, and I, I think all good businesses that are profit-driven um, or shareholder-based would all say that they all have appropriate visions. It's all very well having one, but it's important that you live it and that you act and that your decisions are based around it. And I'd like to think that's something that, that we do. How far and how, how far up the chain does that vision stretch? So have you tapped into the... The kind of general manager side of things and the more the business side of things to make you make sure your vision aligns with their kind of business like profit making uh, revenue generation vision as well. Um, well, it certainly stretches up to our football department as a whole. Um, we have a, a very clear um, what we believe trademark and the way that that we operate and um, my particular area, the high performance uh, unit is a subset of that football department. So our vision can't stray too far from what the vision of the football department uh, would be. Otherwise, it becomes dysfunctional and then you have a misalignment between one unit or one department in your whole department. So our club's very good um, at, at 
having a trademark, and everyone has them, but our club's very good at living it and aligning and referring back to it and assessing how we're going along that path. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've been quite successful is we're pretty clear about what it is that we're trying to do and what I try and do in the high performance department with with my great staff is ensure that we're aligned in the department, but we're also aligned in the fleet department. So your, your question's a good one. Um, we don't dabble in the profit-making area. Um, I, I, it's not our role. Our role is to prepare players so that they can perform to the level of their capability, but I'm aware that there would be other aspects of the, of the whole football club that um, there would be you know, objectives that maybe are a little different to ours. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So in terms of the influences, like you mentioned business and education, was there any specific influences in them areas or any other areas that really helped you define that vision? Uh, look, I, I was very fortunate that I had a, a couple of guys um, that were brought in um, by one of our coaches, John Warsfold, to help um, create a high learning environment for the club and and, and those particular guys um, ended up sort of taking me under their wings and uh, helping mentor me. So I I learned a lot through having a mentor um, approach to things Um, and I'm a great believer in mentoring. I'm a great believer in assisting others because I know the impact that had on me. Uh, I've also become an avid reader, so um, we are foolish if we believe we have the answers to everything, um, we can learn so much uh, from other sports, from other professionals in other sports, um, from other uh, areas of, of the whole you know, regime of people and performance. And I, I like to think that I can um, keep abreast of what others are doing and learn from them. So I, I read a lot. Um, I try and attend as many conferences, but but mostly I try and uh, maintain a good network of colleagues and I, I'm a real active listener. I like to listen to what other people believe and say. I may not always agree with it. So I think they're the influences that I have, but I, I certainly had a couple of a couple of individuals that helped guide me along the way and that's resulted in me wishing and trying to help others. Nice. I know listeners love a book recommendation, Glenn. So have you got any rec- – I'm going to put you on the spot now. Have you got any book recommendations for people in this kind of area? Um, yeah, look, I, I, I've, uh, I have a whole branch of, it, of, of things that I'm sort of uh, trying to work through at the moment. So uh, Measure What Matters and Prove It uh, are two great books about applying measurement uh, to performance, and by that I mean um, we're very, very good in high-performance sports science, strength and conditioning, uh, about having objective measures for outcomes, at how fast can you run, how uh, much can you lift, um, what's your load, but we're very, very poor at measuring people's performance, um, the way that they go about um, developing that outcome um, and I've really taken an interest in trying to provide objective measures for staff in, in trying to help them be better at their role. So there's ways of measuring attitude, behaviours, performance and so those two books measure what matters um, and prove it. I've just finished reading Captain Class um, which I think probably a lot of your reader, uh, a lot of your listeners are probably aware of, which is you know, identifies the traits of great captains. And probably uh, the two books that influence me most, and um, they're a bit boring and um, they're not out of the left field, is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People um, by Steve Covey and also Good to Great by Jim Collins. And those two particular books uh, definitely have shaped uh, the way that I manage lead and administer and I try and apply those principles and they're quite clear about how we operate. So, so those two books in particular, Rob, 
uh, I, I think are incredibly useful. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Glenn. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the vision and some of the structures and principles that the guys, the Eagles, uh, live and work by. We also discuss a couple of examples where Glenn and his team have put the physical aspects or physical priorities aside for the good of the team and the good of technical and tactical work instead, which I think is a really interesting part of the chat with Glenn. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. They've just done a big project in Sydney for the Sydney Swans, um, which is really cool. And you can see that on their Instagram and their Twitter. They also do projects all around the world in the UK, in Europe, um, you know, like I say, in Australia. So if you're looking for anything additional to the, the current provision you've already got in your gym or looking for a full gym fit out, make sure you check out these guys. I've said it a couple of times, but I headed over to Belfast a couple of weeks ago and was really impressed, very, very impressed with the quality of the equipment that's been pumped out in uh, in Belfast by the guys at Blackbox. So if you're interested in anything to do with Blackbox, make sure you check out their Instagram and their Twitter for any of their recent uh, projects. But you can also check them out at Blackbox Fitness. So that's blkboxfitness.com. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. Um, so, so one of the things that you presented on was the key principles and then, then focusing on the big rocks. So would you mind diving into that area? What does focus on the big rocks mean? Because I know that is a, a common term when maybe developing a program and looking at the basics and, and doing the basics really well. But what does that mean for you? Yep. Uh, so the background to that is from the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. And Jim Collins discovered that in the, the 12 or 15 uh, companies uh, out of 2,000 that he assessed, the ones that made the leap from good to great, one of the common principles that these 15, 16 companies had was their leaders operated um, using the hedgehog principle, which is without going into the, the fable, but to do do one or two things and, and to do them really well, to just really focus on the, on the core things that make, make a huge difference. The application to that and the extension of that is um, a funny little you know, gimmick, which is if you've got big rocks and you've got a whole pile of sand and you're trying to get everything into a jar, the way that you do it is you make sure the big rocks are in place first and then sprinkle the sand around it um, rather than trying to put the sand in first and the big rocks on top. And, and the the extension of that is the big rocks are the things that really matter in high performance and sports science and the sand is the little one percenters uh, that we can add after the big rocks are in place. And, and I think we're probably all guilty and I, and I include myself in this you know, some years ago and I'm, I'm hoping that I've changed is that we try to keep up with the team down the road or we keep up with the latest innovation in sports science or, you know, other coaches come to me and say, oh, look, I just know that this particular team does that. Why aren't we doing it? And we get distracted and we tend to do a lot of the one percenters and we forget about the big rocks, the key things that matter most. And I think we've got to ensure that we can 
not ignore the one percenters, but let's get the big rocks in place, the key things that will influence our players, influence our performance first, and then worry about the one percenters. So an example um, is, and I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm not here to detract from compression garments, but it's the example that I would use, and people get the hang of it. Is uh, yeah, look, it's great to wear compression garments and there's a role for compression garments and uh, et cetera, et cetera, but the big rock is sleep. Um, you can wear a 1,000 compression garments for 24 hours a day, but if you're only getting two hours sleep, it doesn't matter what compression garments you wear. So the big rock is to ensure that our athletes uh, get seven, eight, nine hours sleep, and if we can ensure that occurs first, then, yeah, let's worry about the compression garments later. Um, and that, that's an example. So it's up to everyone in their industry. What are the things that matter? And make sure you do those unbelievably well and then add the small stuff a bit later. And, and so that's where the big rocks come from. Is there any other examples that you could give us potentially? I don't, I don't want to yep. put you in a position where um, you're, trying, you're saying things that you don't want to say about no, the stuff no. that you do at the Eagles. Oh, any- yeah, no, I can... Another example, and we've debated this uh, a lot at our club, is altitude training. Um, some years ago, a number of AFL clubs um, invested a large sum of money going, you know, to altitude um, in their in their preseason. So, you know, Colorado and Arizona, uh, Utah, and the investment for an Australian team, for instance, to go to those places is quite significant. You're looking at three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, but we didn't consider it to be a big rock. We, we felt that the improvement potentially from going away to altitude might be two, three, four percent possibly. Um, whereas if we can prove our kicking infe- effectiveness. Um, you know, from 60% to 70%, we're likely to win more games than what we would if we went to altitude. So the big rock for us was our technical skills, our ability to kick goals, our ability to retain the ball, not our ability to run um, with 2 or 3%, um, you know, better performance by spending $400,000 going to altitude. We could use the 400000 uh, and get two skills coaches. So that's another example of, of a big rock. And, that, and that's just us. I'm not at all suggesting we're right. Um, it's just the way that we would see what's more important for us. Is that quite a quite a big thing for, for a, a physical performance staff to be able to do and say, actually, the, the physical stuff that we could kind of show our worth and go to altitude and tell everyone how great what, what great things we're doing, actually, don't do that. Do the technical and tactical stuff because that's where we're going to make a difference, which is removed from the, the physical performance element. And you can almost show that you're doing how great your work is. You, you're passing that off, not passing that off, but giving that responsibility to the technical coach and tactical coach because that's where the difference will be? Uh, well, it all, I guess it all comes back to what you consider your purpose or your role is. Um, our role in high performance is to uh, contribute to the team uh, being the best it can possibly be. Now, if the, the improvement in the team is obvious in an area that isn't physical performance, then our, our role is to prepare the players as best they can, but also to provide the opportunity for whatever area of the football club that can have the greatest impact. Um, it's my style, I like to think, and others you know, are welcome to, dif- to disagree, but it's my style is for us to be very, very clear what our role is, and it's not all about us. Um, we're not we're not here to prove that our high performance department is the best high performance department um, in the AFL or in sport. Our job is to be the best contributors to our team performance, and we need to um, bathe in the reflected glory of the team, and not bathe in our own glory. And that's the way that uh, hopefully. I try and get the message across to our staff is that you know, it's all about others. It's not all about us. If if the great area of improvement was in something in physical performance, then it works the other way that in our discussions 
with our coaches and the other staff of the footy department and we all acknowledge that if we can improve the physical capacity of our players, whether it be strength or speed or aerobic capacity, then, yep, let's bring it on. But if the great great leap from good to great is in another area, then we'll play our part in assisting others to do that. Excellent. I, I think just from a personal point of view, I guess that's quite hard to do to kind of put the ego aside and especially with the, the social media and the publicity around individuals and practitioners wanting to promote themselves, wanting to promote how good their performance departments are for whatever ulterior motive that may be. So actually park the ego and move with the, the kind of mentality that you've got, I'm guessing is quite, although people may say that's that's quite easy, that's quite hard because that's, like, it's, like I say, removing the ego from the whole thing. Um. Well, I guess there's a deeper aspect uh, to all of this, Rob. Look, we try to the best of our ability to employ good, solid staff. Um, We employ staff necessarily uh, from the outset because they're good people, I I like to think. Um, We don't always necessarily employ people that have the greatest technical skills all the time. Or, or are the most advanced or have the greatest knowledge in a particularly unique field of physical performance. Our number one criteria is let's get a great person first and then if we need to upskill them in some aspect, then we'll do that in-house and give them the opportunity to develop. So when you employ those sorts of people, um, I guess ego is not a particular trait that is embedded in that area and and some people might laugh because here am I doing a podcast so well done Glenn you're not even living living your own value but as as you know as you know and I know uh, Rob you know, it took some persuading to, to even do this so um, but I but the point I'm trying to make is we also don't turn over our staff a lot so if you turn over your staff a lot I can understand fully while why people in this area do need to promote themselves because they may never be too far from looking for the next job and and to look for the next job um, you, you need you need to be out there in the marketplace so I think that's really understandable uh, we don't turn over our staff a lot we, we try and develop within we, we're really uh, welcoming uh, our own feedback and say, look, you can be, you can improve in this area. This is your strength. But so we try and help them be better people and, and better employees before we might just necessarily cast them aside. But if you're turning over your staff a lot, I, I can understand why people might, might be out there um, more in the social media be, because they need people to know their skill sets so they can get ready for the next job. So I, I don't, I don't think you'll look of any of that, I, I can understand it. Uh, it's just not something that, that happens a lot in our area and, and we don't do a lot of that, that's all. I understand. Cool. That sounds good. And I really do appreciate you coming on, by the way, and uh, giving us <laughs> the persuasion. <laughs> um, one thing that I wanted to finish off with was, and something that I'm really interested in your take on, that's a focus on the man- mental aspect of the sport. And it's one thing that came up a couple of weeks ago. I did a round table with um, some people who work in academy football over here who head up academies in, in soccer, sorry. And one of their comments in particular was that psychology in, especially academy football, academy soccer, is where strength and conditioning was 10, 15 years ago. Would that be something that you agree with? And, and where do you see the mental aspect of the sport going and where does it fit at the Eagles? Um Look, I, uh, I'll come back to your question specifically. Is it well? I can ponder it in the back of my mind. Is it where strength and conditioning was ten or fifteen years ago? Look, uh, I firstly must say I think it's a really critical part of high performance sport. Uh, there's, uh, I'm definitely um, on the bandwagon of improving the area of mental skills. There's no doubt in my mind. Is that there's three aspects to it? I think. Um, the first aspect is the ability to prepare for a game 
uh, and that preparation can occur five days out, four days out, or can be occurring two minutes before the game starts. And I think um, we need to prepare them mentally and physically. So there's preparing for a game. Then there's uh, the second part is in-game thinking because we don't have an influence on the player once they're out in the middle of the field. Uh, we need them to make really wonderful, informed decisions under enormous physical uh, and mental pressure, and we need to train them to make those decisions, and they're not going to get everything right. So we also need to train them to overcome uh, a poor decision by not doubling up and, and making a second poor decision. So there's in-game mental training. And then there's the ability to reflect and review a game so that they can improve and be better for the next game because unless you have the reflection and reviewing part, you don't actually learn. I mean, growth occurs through the ability, the skill of reflection. So there's three aspects uh, about the, the development of mental skills that are really critical to Im Im improving performance, pre, in-game and post-game. So I think there's, uh, there's definitely a role. And then added to that, um, I'm led to believe from what I've read and, and, and through research and talking to our own players, there's an increasing uh, degree of life stress uh, placed on professional athletes and, and partly due to social media, partly, uh, partly due to the way society's changed. So we need them to be able to handle the stresses of life as well. So I'm a big believer, I'm a big believer in the development of mental skills and it fits very nicely into our club. Um, it also is a component of the high performance department um, and it's still growing. I don't think I don't think it's as antiquated as maybe strength and conditioning training was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, the people that we need to influence most are the next generation of coaches and administrators because they're the decision makers about whether to employ people in these roles and they, need, they, the coaches and administrators, need to embrace mental skills. So I think we're, we're one half generation away uh, from seeing it as an integral part of high performance. I think the next line of coaches who have been the players that have been exposed to it will be the ones that embrace it most. So I just think we're that next wave of coaches uh, from seeing it as a, a fully functional, integrated part of high performance. How do you guys, the Eagles, deal with that kind of social media pressure or society pressure? Do you, how, do you advise the players? Is there someone there to kind of help them along the way with all that kind of pressure from media and all that kind of stuff? How do you deal with that? Um, we, we have obviously staff that uh, work in this area, as does every club. We're not unique in, in that respect. Uh, we will try and upskill our coaches. Um, they're, the, they're the front line um, of the football club. They're the ones that the players deal with most is our coaching staff. Um, I think it's great to have the expertise. The debate would always be, does a player go to the expert? Or does the expert upskill the coach and let the player work with the coach and the coach have the skills? I think probably many people are undecided as to where that balance sits, but we definitely work in that area because it is part of part of the everyday living uh, for this particular generation. And um, I, I think it's not the fact that they're on social media, it's the fact that everyone else is on social media and it's it's the response from everyone else that is the thing that we need to educate our players around and, and how to deal with that. And, and I, I would think we're no different to other clubs that we're certainly addressing it, whether we've got it right, I, I couldn't tell you yet, but it's not something we ignore. Excellent. Well, I said I'd keep you 45 minutes, so I'm going to try my best to stick to this. But um, if anyone wants to, I know you mentioned we've mentioned social media a few times, but if there's any questions that anyone has or follow-ups to any of your the presentations that I'll put links to on on social media or anything like that, where's the best place to for people to contact you? Is that possible? Um, well, it's certainly not social media because I don't have any. <laughs> um, uh, 
and and I'm, I'm fearful that I've got no idea what I'm doing. So um, that that would not that, that there's no point looking for me in that respect. Um, probably the best way, Rob, is just simply through email, and and I can be contacted um, at Glen S G L E N S at westcoasteagles.com.au and you know I get a lot of exploratory emails and I'm happy to help where I can um, so yeah if anyone does want more information or if I can assist I'm happy to try and uh, find the time to help others because others have helped me. Love that well thank you very much Glenn and I, like I say I'll put the links to your presentations specifically from that MIT Sloan one because that's what I used to sure. to base a lot of our questions off today um, and yeah if anyone could get in touch drop Glenn an email but thank you very much Glenn really appreciate it and thanks for giving in to the, uh, the pressure <laughs> to come on and have a chat uh, look thank you Rob I really enjoyed the conversation it, it made me think and, and I like thinking so thank you for the invitation to be involved thank you my pleasure thanks mate speak soon see ya Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Glenn. As always, I really appreciate guests giving up their time, giving up an hour, sometimes two hours, depending how long the chat goes, especially before and after the recording, for giving the time to come on, have a chat, and be really open in some of the things we're gonna, we, we chat about. So really appreciate Glenn for coming on and doing exactly the same. So also big thanks to the four sponsors today of the podcast. It could not happen the podcast could not happen in its current form without the support of them four sponsors from today's episode so i've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and a couple of compilations of best ofs and thank you again for your constant support would love any feedback you've got on this episode or any other episodes that we've done over the last five years and i will chat to you next week 